You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us this evening. My name is Bianca Winata Putri, and I'm the Public Programs Coordinator at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. I would like to begin by acknowledging the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations as the traditional custodians of the lands on which M Pavilion is situated, and we extend our respect to ancestors and elders past and present, and to all First Nations people who are with us today. This is the fourth in an ongoing series of think tanks associated with Who's Afraid of Public Space, which is an exhibition and research project initiated by ECHA. Tonight's session is delivered in partnership with M Pavilion and will also be recorded for podcasts, which will be accessible via M Pavilion and ECHA's website and through your favorite podcast provider. Taking place over the summer, Who's Afraid of Public Space also extends across Melbourne with a series of satellite exhibitions in collaboration with cultural partners, as well as installations, events, and projects in the public realm. Do visit the ACA website for the full program. Tonight's panel will be led by the wonderful Norsh Kembi, who is also one of the curatorial advisory members for Who's Afraid of Public Space. Noor is a curator, writer, and scholar of contemporary Islamic art. She has produced and curated over 150 events, exhibitions, and community engagement projects. Noor was part of the core team that established the Islamic Museum of Australia, serving as the museum's inaugural art director and exhibitions manager and founding curator. Noor engages her independent curatorial practice nationally, and her recent exhibitions include Soul Fury at Bendigo Art Gallery and Destiny Disrupted at Granville Art Center in Sydney. Noor is also a founding member of Eleven, a collective of contemporary Muslim Australian artists, curators, and writers. Noor is currently undertaking a PhD in the Department of Art History at the University of Melbourne, where she is investigating contemporary Islamic art through a neo-Orientalist and post-colonial lens. Finally, Noor is a fellow of the Center of Visual Arts, COVA, at the University of Melbourne. We are also joined today by Idil Ali, Anthony Hamilton, Nicole Combs, and Stephen Rao, who will be introduced further by Noor. A few housekeeping items. Um, please silent your phone throughout the event. Uh, we will also take questions towards the end and for those, for COVID safe reasons, for those sitting in the front, please yell out your questions. And for those sitting in the back, uh, we will have a microphone just in the middle of the area here where you can use that to ask your questions. Lastly, a very important one, the closest public bathroom is in Linlithgow Avenue, um, which I believe is over there. Sounds far. <laughs> Not very close. <laughs> um, that's pretty much it then. Thank you so much for joining us today. And Noor, over to you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Bianca. 
And thank you everyone for joining us this evening, this lovely evening. Thankfully, the sun has sort of passed over. It was kind of warm a bit earlier. Um, so welcome to Who's Afraid of Public Space Think Tank 4, Movement of People and Safety in Public. So um, I too would like to begin by acknowledging that we are gathering this evening on the unceded lands of the Eastern Kulin Nation. I would like to pay my respects to elders, past and present. Um, so Bianca introduced me earlier. My name is Noor. Um, and now I'd like to introduce our stellar lineup of speakers. So starting to my left here with Stephen Roll. So Stephen is a post-conceptual artist operating from a First Nation, white-passing, cis-male positionality, geographically located on neighbouring Woiwurrung and Wathurugong lands. Roll's cultural background consists of Tongurong and colonial heritages a state endemic to living on a colonised society, but goes by Tororong when asked. His alter ego, black metal, is less defined and uses they, them pronouns. Roll's art practice finds expression in ideas of institutional critique, interrogating modes of representation, classification and hierarchy, both within and external to the art worlds. He works across various forms and interventions, including installation, performance, process-led methodologies, curatorial projects, sculpture and art within the public realm. Many of his projects propose, explore and critique the exchange of economic and cultural capital found in the matrix of relations and intersections of First Nations art production, presentation and encounter. Roll is represented by Mars Gallery, lectures at the Victorian College of the Arts and is a PhD candidate at Monash University on Buraranga land in Melbourne. So next, welcome Stephen. Um, next, um, our next guest is Idu Ali. So Idu Ali is a proud Somali woman raised by the East African community in the Carlton Flats a settler on unceded Wurundjeri land. It'll embeds her belief in, sorry, changing pages, freedom, sovereignty and resistance into her work as a writer, performer, youth practitioner and community organiser. Welcome, Idol. <laughs> so, Nicole Carnes. Um, Nicole is an associate professor in the Faculty of Art, Design and Architecture and founding director of the Monash University XYX Lab, which leads national and international research in gender and place. The innovation of Calm's research is the examination of digital, experiential, political and material interventions collated to articulate both the shared and conflicted struggles of women and girls internationally. Her praxis repositions design as a strategic tool for challenging gender inequity. Her recent research has focused on public transport spaces for women and girls, gender-sensitive CPTED, which we'll talk more about shortly, and the use of participatory co-design to challenge gender-neutral urban policy. Welcome, Nicole. And last but not least, we have Anthony Hamilton. 
Anthony is currently artistic director of dance company Chunky Move. He works with collaborators to experiment with materials and spaces and uses choreography to occupy vivid imaginary worlds. He is preoccupied by the notion of an element, primordial body, situated in a construct of intersecting contemporary narratives while being confronted by the dilemma of an unknowable destiny. Over the course of his career, he has been the recipient of prestigious fellowships from Bangara Dance Theatre, the Tanya Lecti Foundation, the Australia Council for the Arts and the Sydney Meyer Foundation. In 2013, he was the resident director of the Lucy Guerin Inc. and in 2014 was guest dance curator at the National Gallery of Victoria for Melbourne Now. He is also the inaugural international resident artist at Dance Makers Toronto from the years 2016 to 2018. Anthony has received four Holtman Award nominations, winning for Black Project 1 and 2, and Forever, and Forever and Ever with the Sydney Dance Company. He has received numerous Green Room Awards and a New York Performing Arts Bessie Award for Outstanding Production for Meeting. In 2019, he created his first work as AD of Chunky Move, Token Armies, and in 2020, he was guest mentor for Dance House Helsinki Sparks Project. So welcome, everyone. I'm really excited to be moderating this timely conversation with these incredible speakers this evening. Um, so for those of you joining the Think Tank for the first time, um, I'd like to give this event some context. Tonight's conversation is part of a series of public think tanks for ACAS Who's Afraid of Public Space. So as Bianca mentioned earlier, um, it's an exhibition and research project which continues ACAS Big Picture series and endeavours to explore contemporary arts relation to wider social, cultural and political contexts. Engaging contemporary art and cultural practices to consider critical ideas as to what constitutes public culture and to ask, who is public space for? The exhibition is inspired by and seeks to animate recent global debates related to the incursion of private interests in the public sphere, the politics of land and place, and patterns of urban transformation, gentrification and technological change. In Think Tank 4, we aim to explore the movement of people and safety in public by foregrounding gender, race, class and the self to better understand the nuanced experiences of public space in this moment. So I'd like to begin um, with Stephen, um, your recent project, uh, which is associated with um, Who's Afraid of Public Space, and involves a single text-based work which co-ops technological infrastructure, so in other words, Wi-Fi, um, and renames the SSI, so the single server identifier, which Stephen will explain more about shortly, as Aboriginal land. Can you please share with us the intention behind and how this designed both as an encounter for the public and an artistic endeavour that involves multiple participants? Thanks, Nur. Um, thanks again uh, for everyone coming along this lovely evening and for the introductions. Um, yeah, I'm really grateful to contribute to the conversation and I guess in speaking through um, the artwork, Aboriginal land, parentheses, SSID, parentheses. Um, to give us some context, I, 
I thought I'd get my phone, um, which presumably most of us have here, and you could even participate now if you wanted by looking at your, your, your Wi-Fi signals or looking at what Wi-Fi signals might be here. And um, just going from the top of the list, I've got capital AER2200-F4 lowercase a, um, capital M, capital P, AV, LX, um, maybe a bit more familiar, Netgear 01 and... Um, uh, IDOM staff, the nefarious sounding staff distance. <laughs> How's that? Um, and I guess how the artwork sort of came about, um, and it isn't necessarily, whilst it is part of the exhibition at, at ACCA, um, the exhibition as um, exhibitions tend to do, particularly through institutions like ACART, is, is um, framing a presentation of the artwork. Um, and it's more based on an idea. And um, the idea began by renaming my iPhone from Stephen's iPhone to Aboriginal land. Therefore, when I would connect to my hotspot, it would be um, Aboriginal land that I'm connecting to. It extended from there and I renamed the SSID of my home Wi-Fi to Aboriginal land and um, given I would encounter the SSIDs of those within proximity to me, whether it's on public transport or those of my neighbours, which could be Telstra, AXZ and so on, um, the work uh, essentially through this project um, expanded both in terms of an audience, um, because I guess in, in one sense an exhibition by its um, very nature and function involves audiences and presentations of artwork, but also uh, in, in terms of the works, um, one of its foundations is like it's a, a participatory work. So whilst I've renamed my own SSIDs, anyone is able to also. Now I'll start with the script, which I've is, got bits of paper too. It's all yep. good. <laughs> so sharing the intention behind the SSID, um, as I mentioned, the work by its own nature and at its core is based on gesture, that of changing the SSID of whatever um, applicable Wi-Fi network and on whatever device um, may be involved as part of that whether that's changed by myself or others. So I mentioned it's participatory. Um, I'm, I'm sort of uh, maybe challenging the idea of the, the single author of an artwork. Um, and it's only a slight gesture, I feel, in that it is essentially just an editing of text, but not only um, uh, physical forms of, of, of text like we might see on the um, sign-in COVID uh, and other wayfinding signs, but um, digital-based text. Um, this gesture uh, mimics how we edit text daily en masse, um, but for me, uh, carries significance associated with the nominal or, an, or to name something. Usually, we're assigning um, uh, some sort of... Uh, uh, value to something by naming it. It, it took me two, took my partner and I two weeks to name our, our child. So that, that was quite an important process. Um, so it's the name that they've got 
until they might change it themselves. Um, and yeah, there's some intention or level of uh, permanence in, in some of those instances when we name things. Um, changing names of Wi-Fi networks um, could be uh, thought to maybe subvert or, or otherwise adopting um, an innocuous naming process. Um, like the SSIDs I read out before, I, I, nothing really struck me as having a creative intent. Um, and it's not to say that um, I'm the first person to rename an SSID in a creative way. I've seen some pretty amusing ones um, through my travels. Um, so that innocuousness could be seen um, by these names incorporation of random strings of letters and numerals in addition to sometimes inheriting some type of signifier of a device's uh, provenance, so where it's from, it might be the manufacturer and one of the ones I read out was Netgear. Um, so there's a Netgear modem here somewhere, presumably, or that of the device's association to an institution and or body or bodies. So one of the ones I happened to uh, read out as well was MPAV, presumably associated with where we are now. Um, so apart from uh, gesture contributing to the ideas of a materiality, you know, where for, for, for some reason the art world is like, well, what's the title, what's it made from, how big is it and so on, um, that as a digital signal um, and a gesture, uh, it's otherwise unbound by, um, I argue, traditional artwork supports um, such as the frame, the gallery, and sometimes the institutions that not only provide various physical um, and bureaucratic supports, but also sometimes one might think um, or argue notions of cultural approval and, and value via the presentation. So it's not reliant on the institution. And I was thinking how ironic that it's part of this exhibition at ACA. But, you know, it, it's just the um, how the work has, has spread, I guess. Um, and I'm almost there now. Um, yep. Okay. Um, and I guess lastly, um, so this work is a gesture, um, text and participation, um, because I invite anyone who has the ability and the relevant devices to participate by renaming their own SSIDs to Aboriginal land. Um, that naming or, of course, the work happens perhaps or is uh, activated when someone encounters that text, Aboriginal land, on their own devices. Um, I feel sort of acts both in reaction to and counter to conventions of naming or traditional conventions of naming um, and other bureaucracies that assert some type of authority and ownership. Um, <coughs> Australia. <coughs> um, beyond that, <laughs> Aboriginal land as label um, and as encountered um, in whatever form, it, it, uh, you know, beyond that naming, um, uh, the work is otherwise largely propositional. So I'm, I'm yeah, you know, it's like, um, I guess it's sort of like just asking yourself why you'd want to participate, why you'd 
rename your device to Aboriginal land um, or as a, um, a happenstance encounter with the work as a as it as it popping up on your own device, how how and what sort of effect that might have on you. So that's sort of basically the intention behind that work, um, and maybe perhaps with regards to um, the the public and private. Uh, in the least, it's um, uh, it's not bound by any materiality dimensions or or even time in that matter. That maybe people will be renaming SSIDs. For the next ten billion years, um, so uh, it yeah it sort of crosses over these traditional boundaries, which um, you know I, I argue are constructs. Yeah. yeah. Um, just sort of quickly before we move on to um, our next um, speaker, I just wanted to ask: Do you consider this a public artwork? Well. Um, I'll keep it simple, I think. The answer's coming. Um, yeah, I guess that, as a question, it sort of presupposes there's a difference between maybe public and private. Um, and it, yeah, definitely falls on the, on the public side of that, um, that line. Yeah. Great, thank you. So um, we'll come back to you again shortly and we'll continue that conversation. Um, so Idol, um, I'd like to draw on your incredible narration describing the public spaces in and around the Carlton Flats for the series of audio walking tours, Six Walks, which was commissioned by the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. So I'd like to invite you to speak to us about the shifting public space for, for the residents in Carlton and how this impacts the community. I think that's on. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Um, yeah, I feel like I, I spoke, um, I'll try to do a condensed version of what I did um, as part of the Six Walks series. Um, it's over a great series. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. I love listening to everyone's. Um, yeah, I think that the Carlton I grew up in um, Carlton Public Housing um, and many years ago um, there was walk-ups and I think for a lot of public housing that exists in like Flemington and Fitzroy um, all of Askervale all the different neighbourhoods have had walk-ups and a lot of um, what you might notice are the high-rises the really big buildings and you know they're a little bit harder to um, to privatise so they get to remain as public housing whereas um the walk-ups or the flats that are a bit shorter um, have been demolished and have been privatised. So um, originally residents were told that they were being refurbished for them. Um, I think as time progressed, it got more truthful. But in um, previously, uh, when it started happening, we were being told that, um, that they were being improved. And especially for Carlton, they didn't have elevators and for a lot of families, um, for people um, with disabilities, um, it was difficult to get um, up the stairs um, for a lot of different people. So um, it was a welcome change. And unfortunately, um, well, fortunately and unfortunately, there was a lot of suspicion around that. And a lot of um, parents like my own asked um, when we'd be able to move back and asked a lot of questions. And um, the plot for there to be mixed housing started to be revealed. and. Uh, a lot of the dialogue around that is that it would be beneficial if there was a mixture of um, different different wealth in the 
in these areas that um, a lot of residents being low socioeconomic uh, makes spaces less safe was the rhetoric. Um, but they're not mixed. So what happened was they they built the public, they built the private housing. Um, most of the buildings were private and maybe one in Carlton, it's only one, but in other neighborhoods, it might be one or two um, are public. Some of them, some of the housing, it's none of them are public. They're all private. Um, but essentially what happens is they get private buildings right next door, real flash, real pretty. And then right next to it, the public one that look like, my mom calls them Ikea houses because they're just so breakable and they're just like, you can tell they just got all the pieces and just put them together, but they're not really, they're not really homes. And I think that one of the things that's really um, great about the high-rise buildings, a lot of the homes are very sturdy and like something that we're used to is having sturdy homes. And when you have families, it's always better to have sturdy homes. And um, as soon as the private housing came, then the Carlton Bars next door got refurbished, which was exciting for us because we, we used that space. I, as a kid, I used it for um, indoor soccer, um, swam there all of summer. Uh, we used it for Ramadan soccer. It was much like big community space. So it got refurbished. Um, and even though it's still a YMCA, it's it's been more privatized, like the way that community uses it. We used to have every Sunday night, we used to have like a women's, and you might know about like a women's, um, like pool nights. So they'll just have like women's only nights at some YMCA's and stuff. Um, and as soon as it got refurbished, that was gone. Um, and they said that they weren't going to do that anymore. It's so difficult to do Ramadan soccer because the whole point is that, that it's later in the night. And after people have been fasting the whole day and they come back from prayer, they get an opportunity to do sport and rec. And it was such an amazing thing for a lot of like our young men across neighborhoods would come together. And now because of the new structures that they put in place and you know how policy works, it's policy now, but who creates policy? The people who work there. So after 9 p.m., no soccer in the center. Um, sometimes you can negotiate and get it till 10, um, but it's not the same. We used to be there till like 1 a.m. and 2 a.m., which was like 1 a.m. and 2 a.m. is like stock standard in Ramadan because our time is so different. And it's like, it was responsive to the community. We got a new futsal court and a soccer, um, a futsal court and a basketball court, which is amazing until um, we were told that we needed a booking system, which my brother and his friends were not about. Um, there was people playing bicycle, what's it called? It was like bicycle polo which I, I was like, I've never even heard of this before. But they were like, well, we have a booking from three to four. And we were like, that's really funny. Like, and the boys are like, do you want half court? And they're like, no, actually we, we have to use the whole court. Like we have a booking, you can go over to YMCA. And um, the boys responded, well, we've had a booking our whole lives because this is our backyard, because this is where we play, like, you know? And I think it's interesting because when you live in the buildings, the areas surrounding the buildings, the park, the basketball court, like, it was a shitty basketball court before, but it was our basketball court, you know? Um, the Carlton Primary School, um, we used to have an underground space there. And that was like, if you were 12 to 25, like that was your space. You can update your resume. You can, um, it was so tiny, don't get me wrong. It was like the smallest space, but you got to make pizza there. You got to make your meals. It was, it belonged to us. And um, when there were, as soon as they were going to refurbish the space, they turned it into an early childhood center, which is amazing. My little nephews go there, but they didn't build 
somewhere for young people. Um, we were told the Kathleen Symes Library, we would get to use that and we got, we got shown the space that we would be able to use um, as teenagers. It was like under stairs and it was really tiny and it was really like Harry Potter vibes. So we were like not having it. Um, and I think it's difficult because like when you're used to not having a lot, sometimes um, you're taught to accept scraps and I think it's better to say no and it to be shown that we don't actually have things. and. Being Carlton, being city of Melbourne, it's the space with the most young people. Um, so it's pretty like upsetting to think about not having a massive public space, especially because when, when, when we didn't have a lot, we, had, we still had space. But when things get nicer, and this is what happens with gentrification, when things get nicer, we're told it's, it's not for us anymore. Um, and as things gradually change we noticed you know the floodlights came in the cameras came in a bicycle there was like bicycle lanes that got put in between the buildings on Drummond Street which was like amazing because you know the environment don't get me wrong but they wanted to put a road in between the two buildings they wanted to continue Drummond Street and I have these moments our families protested they did like it's so beautiful when we see our mamas doing petitions knocking on every door um which like sometimes political political parties see like organizing power and they get excited and they think they can utilize it but they don't realize we like literally march to our own drums we do not <laughs> um that's not completely true i've seen people get i've seen things happen people get paid type of ways but for the most part we do not do things unless you know like we understand how the game goes and they, it's horrific to think that kids play in between the buildings, that's our space. It's not even feasible to put a road through there, but the fact that parents had to actually get organized in order to, for that to happen. And I guess like I make that point to show that if we didn't organize, if we didn't fight for ourselves, the amount of horrible things that would have been allowed to happen, um, they got rid of the booking system for the futsal court and the basketball court because the people who were paying to use the space um, were having a lot of trouble because the people who've always used the space um, kept on clashing with them. And like YMCA obviously was like, well, this isn't working. So we won't have a booking system anymore. But it's literally, if we listened, we would have nothing. Like, um, But as the cameras came in and the floodlight came in, you could just notice that it was pointed to the to the path that was built in between the buildings. And we've never had that before. And for people who live in the buildings, they know that there's CCTV, there's like um, cameras and all the elevators. But before the privatization, like nothing really worked until privatization happened. And suddenly there's a parking spot that's, that used to be a parking spot, but now it says no parking, but the police are often parked there. Um, and the residents are largely the same, um, except for all the people who got moved out, of, out to the outer suburbs when they privatized um, the public housing. So it's like, what has changed for there to be police here all the time? Um, and amongst that, like, what's, like, who's it for? And I think um, having grown up in public housing, I didn't really know how private housing worked. I remember talking to a friend about her front garden um, and her wanting to change things up. And we were talking about like plants you could get. And she was like, you know, we can't make it too nice because then the cost goes up of rent. And I was confused by that. And she's like, yeah, like when you rent a place, if you make it too nice, like if your front garden's really nice, like your rent, it's more likely your rent will go up sooner because you're changing the value of the home. And I was like, oh, yeah, like that's the same for gentrification. Like I was like, oh yeah, you're talking about the same thing we experienced because it got really nice and the cost of living 
was the surveillance went up and the policing went up. Um, yeah, so in terms of how I went for the community, I don't know, it's real cute. We've got palm trees on Palmerston Street, um, but there's a lot of police, so not great. <laughs> Thank you. And we'll come back to um, this point about who who is this surveillance and safety really for. Thanks so much, Idol. So on to Nicole. Um, so a bit of a change of pace, sort of. Um, so your research is a powerful and necessary investigation into gendered public spaces with two significant research projects, urban exposure, interactivity mapping, the systems of sexual violence in cities, and women and girls only, understanding the spaces of sexual harassment in public transport. Can you tell us more about these projects and if or how the project findings will affect the day-to-day -day reality of women? Is this question about better design or is there a need for a, uh, sorry, is there a need for a cultural shift? Thanks, thanks for that question. It's really interesting the um, uh, conversation building um, and making notes about kind of the connections. But yes, I think that the two projects that you've kind of named are umbrellas for a range of work and research that we're doing at the XYX Abbott Monash that kind of fit under um, work that we're doing around public transport, but then work that we're doing around understanding the lived experience of um, women and gender diverse people in public spaces. And that relates directly to the pieces that we have in the exhibition at ACCA. So I think all of these things are, are really trying to think very carefully about how we can create more equitable cities for everybody. Um, and not just cities, but also communities, which I think is there's a kind of slight difference between those things. So um, to speak through the, the work at ACCA, which is titled Keep Running, we're really thinking about how we can extend beyond the gallery walls and start to work across hundreds of sites in Melbourne. And that comes directly from a recent project called Your Ground, where we've been gathering the stories and experiences of women and gender diverse people. Um, and it's really directly related to how we're improving communities and particularly infrastructures. So the, the way that this particular project has worked is with um, local government organisations um, and very particularly around recreational spaces. So in the context of COVID, really trying to understand the value that communities um, place on recreational spaces and the ways that access and inclusion and indeed exclusion can affect women and non-binary people's experiences of well-being, of health, etc. So it's really about kind of tying that lived experience back to the local communities so that they can understand those issues which are not often um, surfaced, but also to think very carefully about how they can prioritise particular aspects of those local communities and allocate really kind of pragmatic things like budgets and um, uh, uh, the allocation of kind of um, gender equity strategies across those particular issues. So I guess the idea being that if we don't understand the needs of those communities, we can't actually act um, in a way that services them. I think the, the question of how and if it will benefit the communities is a really important one. And one of the things that I've been interested in kind of speaking about is the kind of expertise, which is something that's been raised earlier in this conversation, the expertise of kind of professionals. So um, my background and the team that I work with, we're architects and urban planners, we're designers, communication designers, and 
a lot of the work that we do is for people who are aligned with that profession. But we can't make assumptions about the communities that we work for. And just because you're expert doesn't mean that you know what's happening in those communities. So um, part of our process and our methodology is to ensure that those experiences are surfaced, that the expertise of the professional is actually kind of diminished so that the, the um, kind of co-creation, the participatory practice can happen with the communities. So it's really about sharing that information and allowing the kind of communities to work together to, to co-create solutions. So um, I think then the, the one other thing that's really important to notice is that um, the research that we do is described as looking at gender and place but actually gender is one part of a whole range of intersectional issues which we're talking about here tonight. So when we're talking about gender, we also need to think how that sits alongside ethnicity and age and disability and indigeneity um, and sexuality to, to make sure that those things kind of are, are, are surfaced equally. And so with the work that we do, it's, it, it does sit across all of those issues and so it those things are also drawn out um, and again kind of then surface in the ways that we might move forward with communities. Great, thank you. Um, so we'll, we'll, again, we'll come back to um, this in more detail um, shortly. But um, Anthony, so drawing on like your incredible body of work and your practice, um, I'm really interested in this um, provocation that came up when we spoke um, earlier and it's you were raising the question about who was allowed to push against permission um, and be disobedient public. Can you share your thoughts on this? Sure. Um, I think just going off um, some of the things that... Um, have already been been spoken about a little bit, particularly Stephen says something about uh, you know the construct of of um, of our lives and the and the constructs that um, that kind of dictate our lives in many ways. Um, we are, I think, as as human beings, an assemblage of our surroundings. We know we're not sort of isolated um, in and of ourselves. Um, we sort of operate. As a, you know, there's a confluence of things that come together and a lot of interactions that occur between between people and situations, um, and inside those, um, there is a, a person, you know, an individual person that is also constructed inside all of that, um, and um, yeah, we we did. We spoke about sort of. And then just getting to this idea, though, this, this other idea that Stephen also mentioned about this sort of the construct of, the, of this binary between the public and private space as well. Um, it's, it seems to me a little bit that that perhaps comes from quite a capitalist, capitalist sort of sensibility um, of, of spaces in the sense that um, the private space is something that can kind of be bought and sold or even this whole notion that space can be carved up and divided, um, separated out into ever smaller components and and, and chunks, you know, um, is 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 an especially kind of strange construct in a way as well. Um, 
I'm, I'm getting a little bit off topic because I was sort of thinking also about this this sense of moving through the world um, with a with a with a dancer's sensibility and the knowledge that has sort of come from that and the, and the sort of um, a, a, a way in the world in which um, language is not necessarily primary, but you're thinking about you know um, things beyond language and outside of language about your sensory experience of the world. Um, but getting directly to what you were sort of asking, because I can go into more of that later, I suppose, which is a really interesting topic for me to talk about. But um, talking about this, you know, the person, the individual that is, um, um, you know, in, in many senses unique, um, there, are, there are certain things about you, the way you present that you, you can't control, you can't change. And there are other things that you can control and you can change. And but presentation, the way you present, is is of course um, incredibly important in how you are going to be perceived and how other people will receive you and interact with you in in in, in public spaces. Idil mentioned that um, the presence of police in Carlton, um, in your neighbourhood and amongst your community, and I know for a fact. If I'm presenting as as white, um, it's far less likely that I'm going to have a police presence um, immediately interested in me. Um, far less likely that I'm going to have a bag checked in a in a in a shopping centre. Um, these are real real things, you know. They're not they're not imagined. That, that's that's for sure, right? Um, and so, um, yeah. So certainly, there's some some things to sort of unpack there about. Um, about what liberties you know different people have based on things that they they can or can't control about 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 themselves. And um, sort of going back to um, something that you've spoken about also in your work, and that being the psychology of the body um, in private versus public space, and that notion of bending or stretching those perceived boundaries. Um, can you sort of talk more about that and like um, how much of that is from within yourself and then how much of that is, um, I guess, due to your environment, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I can only really speak from my own, my own personal experience. I've been, I've been connected to dance since I was very, very young and... Um, as I kind of alluded to before, I feel like movement and the action of my body pre predates um, language for me, and it, do, it really does for everyone, you know. But it's particularly um, it's particularly pronounced for me because it's something that's carried through into my my, my later life. Um, when we talk about um, the boundary of of things, you know, I'm I'm often, you know, very mindful and aware of the of this construct of the boundary of our own body as well um, where does my body begin and end what what is the peripheral space around it um, is there a is there a kind of interesting dialogue or or thinking around the internal and external space of of my body um, my body's changed from five minutes ago I've already received a lot more information that has now gone into my body, and now it's there, and it's there's there's residue there of the knowledge that I that I'm now carrying. 
the nature of time affecting affecting the changes in my body. The fact that I'm a host um, to many living organisms, actually, this notion that we're an individual is quite strange. Idil, again, when you when you spoke about um, speaking on behalf of your community, it goes to just also indicate to me that we are not, you know, we are not singular. You know, we 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 are part of a we are part of a moving map of 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 organisms. Um, even the sense that my body is more than itself while I sit here because I'm in I'm interfacing with a material thing that that imbues a different physical uh, mode in my body. Um, I think also, I'm, I, again, I'm getting a little bit off topic, but I find this stuff really fascinating and I don't mind, if you don't mind, you know, I mean, then, then I suppose starting to think also about um, the multi-sensory nature of my body, the fact that um, I take for granted that this is my front and this is my back um, and that my my boundary, what if my boundary was actually my sensory boundary, that my self ends where I can see those green leaves over there in the distance. And if I look up into the sky at night and I can see a star in the distance, does that mean my physical boundary, my spatial boundary is between me and that distant point in the galaxy? And, and sonically as well, I think, you know, what part of my experience that's ha happening out there, over there behind me that I'm hearing is now part of me? Does that mean I'm over there? Does that mean I kind of exist over there in some, in some way, you know? Like, so I think um, this, I think the way that we carve up time and space and materiality of, of, of space in particular um, is, is is one way of doing things, and it's it seems to have been a way that is makes makes life somehow easier to construct um, and compartmentalize things. Um, even as the words leave my mouth, I I clock each one. You know, there's sort of like a, a a small object that kind of leaves. Um, um, and I'm, but I'm kind of interested in also the, the, the sort of like interstitial, the in-between space between everything in a way. Um, and I think that does come from a sense of, 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 of being, a, being a dancer and having spent a lot of time with my body. Um, just to, to sort of finally wrap on what I was continuing with, there is also this sense that um, the body has a great capacity to, to, to play with... with, with um, with the public and, and private, and with um, a sense of um, uh, crafting exchange with people, a certain craft that goes into how we interact, how we measure space between each other. It all indicates something. It all speaks something very, um, very nuanced, but everybody understands it, in its, it seems. You know, the way that we, we use our senses to, to interact and connect with people and we use distance or closeness as a way to, um, as a way to, to create, create different sensory experiences for other people, whether, that's a th whether we want to be threatening <laughs> or we want to be, um, uh, give people, you know, a sense of um, uh, comfort in, in distance. Or, yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff in there, isn't there? <laughs> Uh, Idol wants to add something yeah. to this. Thanks. I Thanks, Idol. Um, like even the notion of like 
representing like representing my community. I'm like that. For me, I'm like that can't exist because my thoughts are not my own, and I feel like so much of my thoughts are shaped. I can track a lot of like the things I believe to people in my community that have taught me so many things. Like, um, and I'm just like this this notion of like something belonging to me or belonging to them. Like even when I put in my bio like where I'm from, I'm like. I hate it in the sense of I know how people will consume me and how like the consumption is frustrating because what where I'm from what it means to me is very different to how other people receive where I'm from. Where it's a sense of, where it's a sense of pride for me, it might be interpreted by other people in a different way. So I find it really interesting because um, when we talk about public and private space, I think about. Um, ownership, and I th think about consumption and how we want to take ownership of things so that we're able to to distribute it for consumption or like I guess sell it. Whereas if we're sharing things, then it doesn't belong to any one person. And when I think about public housing, private housing, when I think about um, stolen land, for example, it's like the frustration around talking about treaty but continuing to privatize public spaces. It just feels like. Um, and I know that like my expertise is limited on it, but I'm frustrated to see that because um, how 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 are you negotiating if you're selling things to private owners? Where is the genuineness it takes it a in step that? Further away. Yeah, it's in, it's heading and in I the think, wrong direction. Yeah, and I definitely think it's part of um, a massive plan in a sense, you know. But I think it's frustrating from coming from a community who's come here has been given um, public housing and then um, have been kept away from who owns these houses, owns, owns this land, have been given homes and have been taught to be um, grateful um, and have been taught who we should be grateful for and not to taught who the land belongs to. And now that like, you know, this project of calling um, your Wi-Fi's um, Aboriginal land is, is like, you know, I think it's so important for it not to be, because I think our communities are only taught as much as um, white people in power want us to know. And keeping us away from indigenous community, I believe is a way to keep us away from feeling um, the sense of welcome, a sense of belonging that would mean that we would fight more for our homes, you know? Like I think that you know, when you teach people to be thankful, you're teaching them to take whatever they're given. Whereas when you understand that something's stolen and it doesn't belong to the people who can give and take it at any time, then you understand that like... Where the power belongs. Yeah, where the p power belongs. And also like that as displaced people that we are given a sense of belonging as long as we're guests here and as long as we're not actually causing harm. Whereas people were stealing this land and distributing it how they want and taking from it as they will are not the people who, not who it belongs to, yeah. I'd love to also just expand on some of this thinking as well, which is, I think it's interesting to think about the, the geographic, the larger geographical nature of the way we think about public and private as well, because it feels like a very urbanised idea in a way. I think the, in a sensory way, if you have the opportunity to move out beyond an urbanised environment into an area that is not carved up by roads and rectangular blocks and city blocks and so on, um, you, I think your, your sense of, you, do not really, you don't really think, you don't really feel like you're in public space, as it were, in those words, if you're in, if you're in the middle of the desert, let's say, 
You know, it's a different sense and a different experience. Um, there are no front picket fences. No, it's not no. carved up. Yeah. No, it's and and your, I guess your 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 experience of of boundaries shifts quite quite a lot. Stephen. Um, yeah, that's interesting in terms of experiencing areas um, of uh, where we are on well, uh, experiencing areas. I could say uh, other than ones like this, uh, vast open spaces, um, without, I guess, very physical um, uh, and uh, institutional um, pol political layers and, and concrete layers um, uh, upon that those landscapes that in their various ways contribute to, I guess, a construction and maybe the reinforcement of these different sorts of relationships to space and as part of that, the designations of public and private. And I was sort of thinking about, um, uh, I guess, um, you know, the, the body is singular and um, bodies as, as community and uh, community being maybe singular through uh, relationships and um, that uh, the <clears throat> the um, history of our relationship to each other um, in, in different parts of the world I guess um, I, I'm, I'm reminded of um, the 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 you know the naming of of public. This is a public square, so therefore it sort of designates it as um, having a particular use. Uh, and and maybe in some ways, when I guess ideas of labour ha have changed, dependent on what part of the world as well, and um, with respect to different cultures, um, uh, you know the idea of leisure. Um, and, and in some ways, it's almost like um, it, it, it could be if I was to be the devil's advocate that uh, public, the notion of public space was created in, in, in order to um, uh, reinforce um, uh, different, well, yeah, you know, ideas of relating to, to each other, in, including the labour we might be doing in support of larger systems. Um, yeah, and, uh, and other than that, the word residue is coming up a bit for me. Yeah. Um, whether it's uh, in, in, in the form of um, uh, you know, that relationality being um, sensed through um, a, a visual sense, um, uh, you know, uniforms, signs um, and, and, and sounds and um, perhaps less, less um, written forms of residue that... Um, for better or worse, or for whatever purpose, is about um, uh, controlling uh, um, where, how, um, uh, how much, or how little, or no use of, of space in whatever form that is. It's kind of um, designating where we can um, gather, and you know, these pub that idea of the public square or public space. Um, has a overlay of kind of, um, you know, this idea of government um, creating civil spaces, you know, where they, where you civilise people, where people gather in a manner that's sort of ordained or, you know, mapped out. It's designated. Yeah. 
and so on. So, um, you know, this idea, um, Anthony, of, you know, I, I love this sort of, you know, idea is my, like, personal space as far as I can see and hear. And, um, you know, it sort of brings me to this question, um, actually, um, for Nicole about... Um, the normalisation of overcrowding. So this idea again of like, what's personal space for you? What is deemed overcrowding? And how this results in many women modifying their behaviour. Um, can you sort of talk about this in more detail? Yeah. yeah, it's kind of interesting, the kind of idea of proximity that maybe comes out of thinking about public spaces or private spaces. Um, and, you know, we've been doing research around gender and various types of violence, whether it's physical or non-physical violence in public space for a long time. And one of the surprising things that happened very early on in our research is that I think that many people assume that, and, and certainly designers of public space assume, that when there's lots of people around, spaces are safe. And very quickly, we became very conscious of the fact that that's actually completely untrue for most women and gender diverse people. So um, crowds, particularly urban environments where there's a lot of transitory movement, a topic that we're talking about tonight, um, are incredibly unsafe places. So, um, and also I think that you, when we think about crowdedness, we have to think about the kind of opposite of that, which is often quite desolate uh, uh, vacant spaces and both of these things are hugely problematic when we're thinking about public spaces. And so what we start to see is that um, this idea of behaviour modification, so the research that we've done time and again tells us that women and gender diverse people and girls are opting out of public spaces all the time, um, particularly at um, after, after dark um, and that this changes their whole relationship to cities. So when you have people that won't um, use public transport, um, won't go out alone, um, won't let their children go out alone because they're kind of regulating behaviour for really, really important reasons, um, managing risk, then what we start to see is a whole change, not just to health and wellbeing, but to economies. Um, when we opt out of public spaces, then actually they become less safe and, and more risky. So there's lots of really interesting things to explore with the idea of crowds and, and vacant public spaces. Um, but I think also the, the thing that I might kind of circle towards is something that Ill was talking about, which was this idea of CCTV and policing, which has become the primary tool for managing public spaces. Um, it won't take much for you to understand the absolutely incredible investment that communities make in CCTV cameras as a mechanism for ensuring public safety. And it's incredibly uh, under-researched in terms of gender. So what we know is actually that CCTV cameras and often forms of physical policing make women and girls and gender diverse people feel incredibly unsafe and they become signals for actually risk. So this is where this idea of having a gender-sensitive understanding of space is incredibly important because if we're only ever thinking about one particular kind of user, then we're only ever investing in public spaces in a very particular kind of way. Um, and at the moment, that happens to be gender-neutral kind of thinking about public spaces, which then results in very um, 
particular kinds of public spaces, and as I say, they're only servicing particular kinds of needs and safety for a particular kind of, of person. So I think that there's something about this idea of managing risk, thinking about gender sensitivity, and again, I want to kind of ensure that that kind of crosses over those issues of ethnicity and um, age and disability, etc. We need to think about all these things, but it requires really careful thinking and not generalised perspectives. And I think that's part of what we're kind of hearing tonight is that there's some very particular things which can be included in that conversation. Great, thank you. So, um, it'll going back to your um, conversation earlier. Um, in regards to your community, I'm flicking through bits of paper. <laughs> Don't mind me. Um, so, I'd like to share this quote. Um, it's from a report uh, that the Australian uh, report, uh, Australian Muslims' experiences of policing and surveillance, which was published in 2020 by the Australian Muslim Centre for Human Rights and Deakin University. Um, so it states that there's a dispropor disproportionate surveillance of Australian Muslims is a life point of contention. The present study found an almost universal view amongst respondents that Muslims are constantly watched. Most took surveillance as the new reality for life for Muslims in Australia. However, there was no uniform view on the extent of surveillance or whether it is justified. While most recognise that surveillance is an unavoidable measure within Australia's tense security environment, many of the respondents expressed concern, uh, concerns over the amount of scrutiny faced collectively by Australian Muslims. Indeed, many discussed the adverse impact that surveillance has had on Australian Muslim civil liberties. So my question is, when we talk about safety in public and in consideration of the hyper-surveillance of the Muslim community, Whose safety are we really speaking about? So in other words, is it a fair statement to claim that public safety is actually demarcated and racialized? Absolutely. <laughs> um, I feel like any community, well, I don't feel like I've seen um, and know that any community that's being criminalized, who's being surveilled, um, who's having um, intelligence gathered about them, they're not the community that's being kept safe. It's that simple. Um, for us, like, I feel like it's really um, interesting how early we start being surveillanced um, in our communities. And I think not, be, not only belonging to a Muslim community, but to an African community as well, um, that we don't actually have a lot of community events anymore that the police are not at. Um, and that isn't by our own choice. Uh, and I think that something that people fail to understand is like, when we talk about, like when we're talking about this idea of like how far your body um, exists, like how far do you exist, you know? Um, my first thought was like, that sucks for people who wear glasses because they're not very far. And then my second thought was like, consent. What does it mean for all the space to belong to you and people being in your space? Um, and wh what does that mean for um, wanting to have your own space, you know? And I think about, um, as a community, we don't really have our own spaces anymore, um, sometimes in your home, but what we know about people, um, how police take advantage of warrants, like not having them, but getting parents to consent for them to come in using language bar barriers and manipulating um, families using authority. But I just don't believe that there's um, 
I don't believe it's a coincidence that um, when communities decide that they don't actually want police at their events, that local councils um, rules around using spaces suddenly change is suddenly you need security for it. And communities who don't have a lot of money, especially when we're trying to do things without government funding. And as we know in Muslim community and African community, there's so much counter-terrorism and counter-violence money. Um, and when you decide as a community, well, actually we're not violent and we're not terrorists, so we don't want to take that money. We want to do our own things. What happens is we have these sanctions around like, you know, you have to have security there. Well, if we're doing things out of our own pockets, we don't have a lot of money. So um, the police suddenly, Vic Paul comes in and they offer to do, um, and the city councils or the venue owners allow police to be there in the place of security. And it's really unfortunate because it just takes like one so-called community leader or actual community leader to be convinced. And, you know, like when you're really trying to do something and the whole communities depend, like, Depending is a strong word because sometimes when you're organizing things in community, you really think it's needed, but like, you know, sometimes it's not, sometimes it is, we learn as we go. But I think that something that really stands out to me is like, you know, that pressure of we're going to do something and then suddenly it gets hard. And then suddenly you have to so-called consent, but we're not consenting, it's coercion. We're being forced to do things that we don't want to do. So when I think about this idea of like, who's this for? It's definitely not for our community because I remember being... Um, I must have been like eight or nine the first time I really like understood surveillance at a barbecue that the police were taking photos. They brought their own camera. And back then, like nobody really had cameras. So they had these flash cameras. So all the kids are posing. And my mom says to me and my brother, like, get out of there, like move, you know? She was just like, don't let them take photos of you. Um, and we moved over from the US. We were there during 9-11. So we have like, and we grew up in, like we lived in a community that was very Somali, very Muslim. So we like, my mom knows surveillance. So she really was not having it. But the, the type of jokes that the police were making, you know, they would be like, you know, what's your, they'll ask the kid their name. And, you know, like we have a bunch of names that are in circulation. We have some popular names in the community. So there was like eight Mohammeds. And they're like, yo, what's your nickname? And that's around the age, like, you know, the boys were a bit older um, and they had like their nicknames and like really silly ones, you know, like it'll be like a food, but in your language. And like, it's just, that's your name now. Um, and we have like a beautiful cultural thing of like um, some, your nickname is your nickname for life. There's grown people who have nicknames that's like long nose and that's your name. That's just it. Um, but the police collecting nicknames of children to hold on to, you know? And I think working in youth work, um, you gotta be careful when you tell these stories because you might be telling a bit too much, but you know, literally youth workers being asked to identify CCTV of young people. And when the police come through and ask that confidently, you have to ask yourself how many youth workers have done this? How regular is this practice, you know? Because I'm like, you're a bit too comfortable for you not to expect it. Being genuinely surprised when we don't give them an answer. Like, um, I think that there's such a difference when we talk about the difference between public space, personal and public. We also have to talk about like belonging to a community and working for a community and like the expectation that police have that if you work in the youth space, like if you're a youth worker, for example, well, you're not the person who will know what kid is getting mixed up in this, that, the other. So they'll come through and they'll try to ask you questions. 
and not know who's related to who. So you might be getting asked a question of a young person that's family to you that they're surveillancing um, and they don't know, which I'm a little bit thankful for because I think it's, it's gotten a bit scary for some youth workers because they were like, these, these are children that are like family that they, um, and I think that you shouldn't have to have that experience. Um, and when we talk about like public and private, um, surveillance, we have to talk about confidentiality and who that actually exists for because it really doesn't for our communities. When I think about public housing, it's every like six months that you're filling out all these forms with where you're working, how much you're making, if any changes have happened, which is like, I get that. But then you go to these youth spaces and then you find out like the police are given and not just youth workers, but schools give the police so much information. There's no boundaries um, and now that they've introduced like, you know, police youth workers, which makes no sense to me, but like um, police whose job it is to follow up for young people, it's terrifying to think that there is no safety for our young people. There is no boundary. And how do we expect, um, like when you, you ask that question, it's like, who's this for? It's also the people who actually form the relationships with the police um, in our communities who, whether it's consensual, whether it's coercion, they then decide for all of us who don't feel safe around the police that spaces that, that should be for us no longer do because we're not coming if you're inviting the police. And what we decide as a community that there's only a certain demographic that's then coming certain demographic of our community who's then coming to our events. And we're pushing out any young people who've already been surveillance, who already have experienced intelligence gathering because the young people know when they're being surveilled. You know, and like, it's hilarious sometimes and like scarily so that I'll be talking to a kid and like, you know, the phone will make a sound. They'll be like, oh, is Vic Paul on the line? You know, and, and you're like laughing, but then you're like, oh shit, is Vic Paul on the line? Like, is ASIO listening in? Like... And for those of you that don't know, um, it's legal to gather surveillance and uh, to pick up um, children for questioning from the age of 12. That's the law in Australia and it does happen in the Muslim community. Um, so you've got the, the babies being picked up and, and questioned and stopped at the bus stop on the way to school and uh, rung on their mobile phones. Um, and ask questions and there's all sorts of things that go on um, that's terrifying for young people and and um, we've had incidences in community where um, young people have said that they've been on their way to school and, and stopped and questioned um, and have become so fearful that public space for them is no, no longer a place to be um, and their anxiety caves in on them and we've had young people describing how they haven't left the house in six weeks because they're absolutely terrified of a car stopping again and they don't know if they're going to get pulled into the car and taken away because they've already been stopped and questioned. So public space becomes a very um, scary place for some communities and, you know, even waiting at a bus stop is not a safe um, space for some young people. So, yeah. Cool. And just to add to a horrific statistic, not that it's a competition, but 
I mean, I think it's important to understand the exclusion that does happen. The, earl, the, the average age of first sexual harassment of a young girl is nine. So, you know, when we, when we start to put all of these things together and actually, you know, if you're a, a, a woman or gender diverse person from an ethnic background, then it's, um, you know, it's three times more likely to happen as well disability as well. So all of these things start to give us a picture of what it's like in public space. So um, how are we going for time? It's question and answer time or, you know, if anyone has a comment that they'd like to make. So throwing over to the floor, we've got two hands up. I think um, pink shirt, you were, you had your hand up first. Big loud voice. Uh, so the question was, and I'm just paraphrasing, that if surveillance um, obviously isn't the answer um, for creating safe spaces in public, so in an um, abolitionist sort of mind frame, what would, um, the, what would possibly be um, a way of making public spaces safe? I hope I didn't sort of make a meal out of that. Was that okay? Yeah, okay, good. Um, I honestly feel like community, community, like well, not any individual person can make that um, decision. And I think that also we go back to there's no individual thought in me, you know, um, so much collective and communal thoughts, you know. And I think for me, I really think um, sovereignty, mob getting their land back um, automatically makes us so much safer, especially as a black person. I know that, I know, like, you know, it's just, it's frustrating because I'm like, the biggest answer is like the, um, the simplest answer, which is the truest answer, um, which will be the, the most difficult thing to like make happen, you know? Um, but I, first and foremost, I think it's sovereignty. I think it's community having their own power, having their own spaces. Um, I think public spaces genuinely being public spaces, like this idea of like, there's so many spaces that are for the public, but how do you book it? How do you pay for it? It's so complex and it's policy. People create policy, people create law. We see how bail, bail laws change as quickly as that. Like, you know, we've seen how surveillance has gone um, and like police can go into our social media at any moment now, like things, People in power, when they want to change things, can change it overnight. So I think for us, it's like as communities, um, for us to be actually deciding what changes and how it changes is what's most important and having power to fight back. And I think that like, um, like I think it's really difficult to think in an abolitionist way when we've been so... Um, policed, you know, like I think we're taught punitive measures. So how are we meant to as a community? And that isn't to say that police communities, oppressed communities are the ones who come up with, like have come up with abolition and continue to come up with abolition. When we talk about who challenges um, the status quo and who's actually allowed to, I always find the notion of being allowed, we've never been allowed. We continue to do things we're not allowed to do, 
you know? Um, and I think that that's the strength in like dealing with oppression means that you either die out or you fight and like we're not dying out. Like, you know, we're definitely fighting. So I think it's really, um, and when I say fighting, I mean like fighting for freedom, not throwing hooks at everyone, you know? Like I think it's really interesting because even the language you use of like fighting back is like, how do we, how do we um, de-invest from violence, you know? And I think that it's very different for fighting for your freedom is very different to oppressing people as we know. Um, but I think that for me, I just, um, I think it's community actually having the power and being able to not um, be indoctrinated into white supremacist um, settler colonial mindset to decide like, because this idea of like even creating art, creating um, work, creating um, space, we can only do it in what we've been taught up until now. And we're being taught in schools, we're being taught in, on stolen land, in institutions of racism that have no business being built here. All these places that are named after literal people who've um, done massacres. I just think it's so inappropriate to actually think that we can create safe spaces when literally like, it's a settler colony, babe. Like, I'm just like, it's, it's, I think we're trying, I think that what we're talking about right now is building illusions and illusions don't keep us safe. This idea of like, when you literally said nine-year-olds are the first time experiencing sexual violence, like being nine, I'm just like, what's the notion of being a kid even then? This notion of think of the children is what's always sparked up when people who <laughs> oppress people, when they want to fear monger. And nine-year-olds are being, like, you know, like it's, it's so unacceptable. So I don't, I don't know if that answers your question, Isabel, but, you know, freedom to the people. Thanks. And I think, um, Nikki, would, I think you had a... I was just going to say, as well. yes, that. But... Um, I don't have such an optimistic answer. I think it's a really long game and I think there's a lot of conversations around behaviour change, but behaviour change is generations away. So I kind of feel like as an architect, urban designer, we need to be doing things in the interim. So it's not a happy story, but in, in that, in between these two things, there, there's something for us to think about. One thing I would say is when we see more people who are diverse in public spaces, they're immediately safer. And that is such an easy fix, you know, that when you see people like yourself in public spaces, then you feel safer. So we need to kind of shift that. Thank you. Um, to our next question, big loud voice. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, I'm really not loud at all. Um, or maybe do you want to go to the mic? It's just to your right. Yeah. In the All right. Um, so that story about um, six weeks, someone had been trapped inside of their house, reminded me of this other story when I was speaking to someone. I do a lot of door knocking. Um, and they had not left their house for 20 years. Um, and, uh, yeah, they were, they were local to where I used to live. And I just wonder, how do you re-invite people back into public spaces, um, particularly in suburban contexts where it's very difficult to uh, break up the monotony of architecture. Great question. Did you catch all of that? Did everyone hear that question? Yeah. Um, Nicole. 
I don't have an answer really, but um, I think one of the things that you're speaking about is we get hurt by our experiences in, in public space. And I think that's a really interesting thing to explore. Like we have expectations of people, of spaces, and when they don't meet them, that can be very wounding because they're symbolic of the ways that we want to see the world. So I don't know, but I would. I think that's a really interesting thing to explore. And I think the idea of repairing that hurt is huge and it's um, part of the task ahead of all of us. Um, just something that occurred to me is that I think technology has, has had a large role to play in allowing people to be isolated as well. Um, Electricity allows people to be awake, you know, all the way through the night if they wish. It allows them to stay indoors and have light, daylight, you know. Um, so the conditions of technology, I think, have produced a particular problem in, in um, not forcing people to have a natural circadian relationship to the, the environment around them. So that is a, that's a real challenge because that's something that I don't think people are really certainly not willing to really let go of things, things like that. Um, and I've also, of course, technology has produced wonderful things and allowed us to, 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 to do other great things. But that was just something that, you know, popped into my head. Yeah, just to add to that, like I feel like technology, like you said, but I, I also feel like, you know, being forced to like, um, forced is a strong, yeah, forced, being forced to work, you know, like I think, you know, after you work a long day, you want to get home and you want just time to yourself, you know, and you spend a lot of... So this idea of, like, um, technology and obviously not being able to, to adjust to natural sunlight, but also um, capitalism and the way that we're kept um, working, um, because I think that we'd use technology in a very different way to the way that we use it, because I think, um, like I was saying earlier, we're, like, trapped in what we're allowed to think about, you know, and I think when you think outside of that and... Um, We've seen how surveillance works in the cyber world as well. You know, like when you're challenging um, the status quo, how how much people are um, surveillanced um, and the fear that that brings up, you know, the very legitimate fear. Um, and I guess one thing I was going to say um, in response to Isabel's earlier question, um, I was just thinking about like, um, you know, when you're saying like uh, people from different communities being in public spaces automatically makes it safer but then, like, um, seeing, like, the police doing the rounds in the city makes you not want to be out here. So I just think about how much more funding police have gained over the last couple of years. And just, like, um, I think a very practical way would be for us to be um, taking funding from policing um, that I don't think keeps community safer and putting it into things that actually does make community safer. Because I think that the more money police get, it's being taken away from other things that are genuinely beneficial for us as communities. So the redistribution of um, wealth and putting it into our communities. Stephen, do you have any comments on um, this notion of how do we reinvite um, people back into the public space or how can we make people that feel um, unsafe, safe? It's an interesting, uh, I guess, consideration where I sort of feel that um, people who might be in an isolated state um, and through various um, uh, reasons and, and contexts is to, uh, and 
I think in consideration of um, this other question that came up around how art can um, uh, in, inform uh, our engagement with um, ideas of public and private is to uh, um, directly challenge um, the accepted um, understanding of constructs that uh, have in some ways become um, maybe, to put it one way, for lack of a better term, groupthink, um, accepted um, uh, manners of engaging with the world and engaging with each other. Um, uh, in addition to all sy systemic change, um, uh, you know, that, that's been um, uh, suggested by the group as well, um, that uh, we can uh, potentially uh, challenge the otherwise uh, accepted notions of um, the, the way that we uh, interact with, with ourselves and, and, and the world and um, art can contribute to that um, and has a role in that also, I feel. How much um, do you think this is affected by race? And I can, um, I think I'm allowed to share the story. Um, many years ago at the Islamic Council of Victoria, there was, I shouldn't laugh, uh, there was a letter sent by a very sort of uh, anxious uh, person who basically uh, wrote a letter to say, well, when are you going to fix your community? Because I am terrified of being attacked by a terrorist. And um, basically um, saying that we, the Muslim community was responsible for her fear of going outside. Um, and, you know, I can understand that's a genuine fear, but the thinking... Um, is slightly misplaced, um, greatly misplaced. So this idea of, um, you know, public safety, people feeling safe in public, and then the, I guess, ingrained racism of some people who will generalise or be absolutely terrified at the thought of seeing... Um, a Muslim walking down the street with a backpack, um, someone of colour walking past. I think there's um, statistics or, like, um, research around, you know, people holding onto their bags and objects tighter um, if they're passing somebody of colour as opposed to passing a white passing person um, in the street. So there's all these sort of racial kind of imaginations, these things fueled by, um, I guess, bigotry and, and, you know, this is reinforced in the media and this is reinforced in stereotyping. So does anyone on the panel, sorry, I just gave my own question and there were other people that had questions. <laughs> does, I think we're going to have to wrap up soon, but does anyone have any last thoughts on that, um, on this idea of race and um, public space and and safety and fear? On fear, I, I do. Not so much on race, but I mean, I, the thing that occurred to me when you were speaking was this issue of fear, this problem of, of fear that exists. And why is it? What, what is it that we hold so dear that we're so afraid of 
that um, something happening to us at all in general is the thing that we, we would fear the most. I mean, I think that's, you know, it's, um, we hold human life, you know, very high in the, val in the chain of, <laughs> of values. Um, and that's, that's, that's interesting, I think. Um, yeah, that, that, I think the, the fear thing, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've lost, I had a really good thought and it's kind of, it's kind of escaped me, but there's something to, that, that about this, this, this problem of fear, like what are, what are we holding on to so tightly that we're so afraid, you know? Or, I say we, but I, you know. Um, I think fear is also cultivated. It, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. By I thought it hasn't gone anywhere. <laughs> by politicians, you're right. By corporate interests. Um, so do we have any last comments on that? Or there was one last question, Can, or do we need to wrap up? We need to wrap up, I'm really sorry. Um, so thank you all very much for joining us this evening uh, for this excellent conversation with our wonderful speakers. So thank you, Stephen, Idol, Nikki and Anthony, and thank you to M Pavilion for hosting us this evening and Aka for your amazing work and this incredible um, project that's happening all through the summer. So please do check out um, what's happening and um, be sure to also um, put your headphones on and enjoy the six walks um, and, um, you know, listen to Idols walk through the Carlton Estates and it'll all come together for you. And thank you so much for moderating it. Really appreciate it. Thank you, yeah, thank thank you everyone. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.